This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like yourselves worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So sign up today at www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get our next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. That's www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights for free. Listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Brandon Rhinus. I am a writer, director, producer, filmmaker. Uh, You might know me for my movies Hotbox and Grotesque, and I'm here to share my knowledge with you. Brandon Rhinus, welcome back to the Make It Podcast. (laughs) Uh, It's been two years. Yeah, been two incredibly fast years. I don't know if it's because of COVID or what, but the time just, yeah, flew by. And look at us. Better than ever. We made it. Come so far. We made it to the other side, Brandon. Me and yeah. you. Yeah, still alive. It's uh, I guess it's all it counts. <laughs> yeah, I think in retrospect, it's like, hey, that's pretty. That's pretty cool because right after we had our initial conversation in the fall of 2020, it released close to winter 2020, but we actually spoke in fall of 2020. We were in the throes of something we had no idea you know, the outcome of, we didn't necessarily know all the details. We still don't know all the details. We didn't know all the players. We still don't know all the players. Like at least now we know we're probably going to live through it. It's not, uh, you know, it's, there's a light in the tunnel versus back then it was a little little bit more uncertainty. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so it is interesting to talk to you after all this time, because, and this is me, like I haven't done the work I should have, and we should be doing just keeping tab. Well, we keep tabs on you. That's not true. We do keep <laughs> tabs on you, but through IMDb Pro and other um, systems. But we haven't reached out to you like we should. So this really is a a reunion in a, in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um. Where where there's going to be a lot of catching up, just for the audience's sake. I'm not going to go through a lengthy bio, but I want them to get sort of re-familiarized with you. So I'm going to read just a short bio and sure. you're welcome to amend to it or correct it. 
Brandon Rhinus is a screenwriter and director from Edmonton, Canada. He also writes and publishes comic books and graphic novels through Higher Universe Comics, a company he co-founded. Brandon has written in various genres and mediums, including film, TV, reality, and web series. And you grew up in, now tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, Wetskiwin? Wetskiwin? Wetaskiwin. Of course I missed yeah. it. <laughs> Wetaskiwin, Alberta, and now lives in Edmonton. So uh, I want to, there was, I, I wasn't sure how we would start this conversation. I had a lot of things and a lot of places I could start with. But again, in the spirit of round two, re-familiarization with the audience, can you just remind us of the story of selling your first screenplay? Oh yeah, my first screenplay, yeah, John three sixteen. I'd, I'd sold, I'd sold a few shorts um, up to that point. I actually sold quite a few like short scripts, mm -hmm. but I had written, I'd written several features. One of them was John three sixteen, the story about a a guy who shows up at a mental institution and thinks he's Jesus. And as the story goes, there's it's kind of like maybe he is, maybe he isn't, and the other people, you know, it turns out he's not. But some of the other people you know, think that he is, and he kind of inspires everyone. And it is a, di a different kind of uh, genre that I usually write. I write a lot of horror and that kind of thing, and a bit of comedy. This was like straight up drama. And I met a producer named Jarvis Griner, who I'm still making films with to this day. Um, he went to film school in LA and I just moved back to Edmonton and he posted on Facebook that he was looking for scripts. So I sent him a few of my horrors because at that point, John 316, it wasn't even finished. I had kind of like a like 90% finished, but it was too long and it wasn't very good. I just, I basically, I'd basically given up on it. I'm like, you know, I'll put it on the back burner and maybe one day I'll get around to finishing it. So I sent Jarvis some of my horror scripts and he's like, you know, I, I like your writing, but I'm not a horror guy. Do you have anything else? And I kind of, I didn't want to say no. So I reluctantly told him about John 316. He's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. Let me read it. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got to tell you, like, the script sucks. Like, it's not my best work. It's not even finished. It's like, it's, uh, it's, it's not my proudest work. And I don't want it to reflect badly on me. But he's like, yeah, let me read it anyway. So he read it. And then, um, if I remember correctly, I think it was Christmas morning, like 6am of 2017, I think it was. He messaged me and he's like, I love it. Like, I want to do it. I was like, you serious? Um, and course i need the script need a lot of work so over the coming months we did multiple drafts and we didn't put a lot more work into it and got it up to shape and you know i'd been let down before where i'd option a script or something and then you know it would just never go anywhere and they'd give up so i was kind of unsure whether or not it would actually happen but jarvis pulled it together made the movie happen i got paid the movie got finished and won some awards and uh won the best picture at a few uh, film festivals in Canada and around the world and kind of, you know, let me plant my flag that it's like, yeah, I actually am a, a real screenwriter. I, you know, made something that uh, someone else paid me for and produced and it turned out well. So it was kind of a good way to, um, you know, build the self-confidence and everything. So, you know, I started writing more and more and I've made, sold more scripts since then. And Jarvis has gone on to direct and produce other films and, um, actually just this year they're in post-production on another one that uh 
that he directed that I wrote. It's called uh, Markings for Murder. So Markings for Murder. Well, we'll we will look out for that. I will I will definitely check it out. The poster for John three sixteen is hilarious. the the see The see through garb, Jesus garb, is it's a lot. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure what um, because I remember we had one or Jarvis had one poster. And then when they signed with a distributor, the distributor made a different poster <laughs> and it made it look funny, which the movie isn't. And I remember that all of a sudden became a problem because it's not a comedy. And uh, and I remember there was some debate over whether or not they're going to go oh, with that poster. Wow. And I wasn't really part of that conversation, so I don't know what happened with it. But but it's just like, yeah, it's it's a very kind of serious, you know, kind of feel good, uh, like heartwarming story. And yeah. So it's like making it funny was maybe not the best way to go, but I can't. Remember, I don't know what was decided or what the, you know what they figured out in the end. The, but, the uh, official poster, I think you're right. It's funny. It's it's it can be viewed as it's not funny on its face, but it can be viewed as funny. Oh, okay. And there are. You're right. It causes issues, and it's these little things that get in the way sometimes of the ultimate or our greatest success uh, indie film or any film can have. If I really think about that poster, it's not just sort of the translucent, you know, gown that, you know, our Jesus character is, is wearing. It's also like the choice of font mm -hmm. used on the poster. And I want to say that because for those listening, just think about how small of a detail that is. Like you can't put yourself in a position where you're like not paying attention to that. Like, oh, it's just font. Who cares? No, it matters. Uh, on our film, Adult Interference, uh, it had what we would call, the producers called sort of ketchup and mustard key art. And the poster was awesome. It was, it was hand drawn, but some of the accompaniment around it was a little goofy. And this is a movie about a guy who... It, is an alcoholic and is the last one to find out, you know? So there are serious moments in this movie and it is a comedy. So it kind of worked, but it also was like, maybe, maybe a better or more appropriate color scheme and font would have, would have been there. But, but once it's done, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of, you have to catch it way in advance is the point, almost yeah. like you do an animation, you know, how you edit first uh, you have to kind of, catch it in advance to, 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 you know, prevent the mistake. You said something in the description of how you sold your screenplay, which is you were telling Jarvis, Hey, let me tell you something. This script isn't any good. And at, on the bonsai side, not the make it podcast side, but on the bonsai creative side, we go to panels, workshops, we host workshops. We do consults every week with writers who give us a project and are kind of uh, at first surprised to find that we have some feedback in so many different areas of a particular script. And it occurred to me that most writers don't know when something is good or bad. So how did you figure it out? I, I kind of, you know, you just have a sense for it. And I mean, obviously, I mean, there's always going to be writers that are better than me and they're going to be able to, you know, point out things that I can improve on. And people also just have different opinions. I mean, it'd be the best script in the world and a hundred different people read it and could be like, hey, you should do this instead or change this. 
So I kind of take everything with a grain of salt, but I am aware kind of of my own abilities. And Can I, I push know, back like, on you on that concept, Brandon, a little bit? Yeah. My favorite screenplay is Michael Clayton. My favorite one to read. Mm -hmm. uh, there are others that are really close and maybe there are some that even beat it. But off the top of my head, I tell people, if you want to see how to write a screenplay, read Michael Clayton. And it's not a genre thing. It's a pacing thing. It's a beats thing. Uh, Tony Gilroy is just brilliant. And I would say that, no, a hundred people would read that and say, that's a great script. What a great story you just wrote. And so I hear what you're saying about like, people have this subjective, but there are works of art that are just objectively great, right? Yeah, I suppose. And it's not all necessarily whether it's good or bad. It's just, especially if it comes to the point where we're going to make this thing, mm -hmm. yeah, all yeah. of a sudden they're like, well, you know what? If you change that one part to, uh, you make that a boat instead because uh, we could shoot at a <laughs> marina. Like everyone has those kind of things. And it's like, no, man, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. So everyone, and of course, like say directors of photography, versus like props people they're all going to have like their own kind of bias yeah where they just want i want this change a little bit to kind of you know showcase my talents and so there are things like that and and i mean i don't think anything ever reaches perfection but there are some things that are just damn good you know even in hollywood i mean there's a lot of crap but there's also a lot of things that are just like these people at the top of their game so they're so good i mean yeah we all have screenplays that we just love but um, I even have now I have scripts that I've written that, you know, people on my team and that I know they just love, we, we want to make this, we want to make it. It's perfect. And then I'll take it to a producer and he'll be like, yeah, I just don't see it. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, what? Like everyone else loves it. And it's just like, okay, like doesn't bother me. I mean, other people like it, but, and they'll, sometimes they'll give me their reasoning and it's like, I see what you mean. And, you know, they give me some hints and, but it's like, that's not what I want to do with it. It's, it's like, even if that would make it like quote better, it's that's just not what I want to, to do with it. And I just, I want to be different and I kind of want to do it my way. So that's kind of my thinking on it. We're guilty of that. I'll, yeah. I'll confess to that, Brandon. We're guilty of that. We have been on consults with horror writers and we'll say, you know, don't kill that person. That changes. We're, it, it takes us out of it as, as we, we like, we wouldn't want to be associated with a killing like that of that type of character. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, you know, you guys can fuck off. Uh, we 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 think this is horror. So and we're like, okay, well, you're right. Yeah. You're right. It's just yeah. not for us. It's not, it's like you said, it's not bad or good. It's just not for us if you kill that seven-year-old girl or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's there's like stuff like that that happens all the time where it's not about good or bad. Because I do think, I take a lesson from when I was doing music in another life, a lifetime ago, where there's the type of critique you get when you're good and the type of critique you get when you aren't sonically there yet. Meaning you can, if it, there's a level of, of music making where it's not playable professionally. So you have big problems. You have like, you don't know how to mix your equipment. Isn't good enough to create fidelity that, that can be on the radio uh, your singing, your, your musicality, production, whatever. And then there's the kind of critique like a professional artist gets, mm -hmm. right? It's like, believe it or not, even the Eagles have critics, right? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, my favorite rock band of all time, you know, they took a ton of criticism, the, the Smashing Pumpkins, right? Mostly because of Billy Corgan, but his voice and then just the way he writes, but they didn't have that beginner's issue 
of this doesn't meet the professional benchmark. So yeah, I I will say that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like I've, I think I've reached the point just doing this professionally where I'm good enough. Like I, I'm not making the, the, you know, your first script ever mistakes where I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm at the point where I could write some, something. This is how a screenplay is done. Okay. Like I've reached that benchmark. So most of the criticisms are more story based. It's not like you don't know how to tell a story. It's more this part doesn't work or I don't like this kind of thing. And, and some of those, like I, I take it, you know, I'll listen. If it's people on my team, like, Hey, we're making this movie together. That kind of matters more, but sometimes other people, it's kind of like they may be right. And I could either take their advice or not. And sometimes I just want to stick to my own guns. And even with my, my graphic novel, the boy with a balloon for a head, yeah. I had one publisher. They didn't like the fact that the, the balloon boy basically killed himself at the end. He popped his head. <laughs> they're like, they're like, we're, you can't do that. Uh, they had this other idea of how he could live. And they're like, if you change it, we'll publish it. And I was like, man, like, I can't, I can't go back on my story. I gotta, I gotta like be true to myself. Right. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, sorry, I'm going to turn down the deal then because and publish it myself because I can't, I can't do that just because, you know, I was told to. So it's one of those things, like everyone's going to have an opinion on everything. And, you know, there's some of my favorite movies that if I could be in charge of it, I would take out a couple parts and I would, you know, it's like even just, you know, say the Godfather that I love, there's little things in there that if I really, really had to, I could pick apart. So I don't think anything's really above being picked apart, but um, I'm all, you you always always have to be willing to learn because if you just never accept anything, then not only are you never going to learn, but you're also going to be seen as kind of a jerk. And then you're just going to have people not wanting to work with you. So even on our new one, you know, it's, I write a draft and, kind of everyone wants to throw in their own two cents and it's like, okay, I'll take that idea. I'll take that idea. I'm not going to take every idea because I'm not just going to let other people tell me what to write. And then I do all the work. Right. You lose um, your POV. What's that? Yeah. You yeah, lose, exactly. You, you lose your POV if you do that. Yeah. And that's the thing too. And I did that like early on, I had a script called mother-in-law mm-hmm. and I remember I paid a bunch of different services to get like feedback. And I started like, I'll take a bit of theirs and then then pay this other one. And I, I change it to there. And then by the end, it's like I had this Frankenstein script that was made up of like nine people's ideas and none of them were mine. And and the story didn't make sense and I didn't like it. And I was like, and, and I was too far in. I couldn't even, other than scrapping it and going back to my first draft, I just had to, basically I gave up on it. And it's sitting on my laptop. One of these days I'll go back and, you know, make it proper, but yeah. I would have been better off just not listening to any these are you know industry professionals. I would have been better off listening to none of them because at least it had had my voice in it. Yeah, the secret about Hollywood coverage, the two things about it is the person reading it might be an intern straight out of USC film school yeah. or some other place like that that although they are smart enough to be there, they don't have the life experience to critique in adults writing uh based on maybe inexperience. So, so that's one thing to just keep in mind when you get that feedback, you know, you had maybe a 20 year old read it or a 22 yeah. year old read it, it changes the game and then, you know, totally different generations and, and expectations, for example. And then the second thing is that the score is always a seven or if they use a zero to 50 rainy, it'll always be a 35. Yeah. And so seven's the bailout number. It's the number they've learned will get you to buy more coverage. You know, if they give a six, you know, that means it, they need serious work. It's, it's not, it, you know, it's just barely, you know, readable. If you give an eight, then that's not satisfactory either. 
because the person who bought the coverage is like, well, if it's an eight, it's makeable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like let's buy this thing. So seven ends up being the bailout number on most coverage, or if it's zero to uh, 50, it'll be a 35. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've stopped using all those kind of things. And I've also noticed, like, I've, uh, I've had my scripts where I've written them, I've taken people's feedback, and I've changed them, and then I've gone on to option the script. And then all of a sudden, I have the producer, the guy that's actually going to pay me and make the movie, he wants his own changes, which undoes all that anyway. Yeah. So it's like, why am I taking advice from people that are not writing me a paycheck and have nothing to do with the movie. I'll take advice from the people who are making this movie because right. they're the voices that actually matter because it comes down to me making a living. Right. So, um, so it's kind of depends on who's saying it. And yeah, a lot of the time too, it's someone with less experience than me and, you know, and it's like, well, anyone can have an opinion. And so I don't take their advice to heart as much. If it's someone that's more experienced, I'll be like, they probably know what they're talking about. So I'll, I'll really consider it. But a lot of the time, especially now that I'm making my own films for the most part, I really like to just stick to my own vision because like right or wrong, I want it to be my movie. And I think the kind of people that like my stuff want it to be my movie. You know, they, right. they don't want Tarantino to be taking ideas and changing his stuff based on a, an intern's feedback. They're like, no, we just want Tarantino to tell a story because that's what we came here for. So not that I'm on his level yet, but I kind of just, I like to do things my way and i think that's kind of it's what makes my story better you mentioned grotesque your new film can you tell the audience what this movie is about and it, it's kind of hilarious and then and then and and hopefully scary as well but it's kind of it, it's unusual so i'll just couch it by saying that and then what was the inspiration for it yeah, basically, uh, Grotesque is about a young woman named Mildred Moyer. She was born with, like, an enormous nose. This nose is, like, you know, six, seven inches long. She's been ridiculed her whole life. Finally, she gets to the point where she's like, you know what? Like, I'm sick of this. I'm going to get plastic surgery so I can, you know, feel confident with myself. But, you know, she's a, uh, you know, a broke student type person. She's an intern at a cosmetics company. She can't afford a real um, plastic surgeon. So she goes to this cheap guy who works out of a strip club basement. Mm. And of course, something happens and obviously it goes, goes wrong and her nose gets cut off and she's left with this big hole in her face. <laughs> so at that point, she absolutely snaps and basically goes on a killing rampage and starts killing everyone that ever made fun of her oh or basically boy. that ever offended her in any way. Yeah. And through doing so, she kind of all of a sudden finds herself that even though <laughs> what she's doing is wrong, but... She's just like, this is what I've been supposed to do all my life. And all of a yeah. sudden, she's no longer like the scared, shy Mildred she was before. She's the like super confident, you fuck with me, you die uh, person. And yeah, that's basically it. And there's, it's, it's a horror comedy. It's a slasher comedy, I guess. There's some, some gruesome parts in it, but I think people are going to laugh more or people do laugh more than they get scared. Yeah. Um, so it definitely has, uh, I don't even say it's like American Psycho. It's maybe a little bit of American Psycho, a little bit of some other things, but it's uh, it's getting a wonderful reaction to it, and I'm I'm glad people are responding to it and, and loving it the way they do. Reminds me of a short film that's a slasher comedy named Fetish, and I won't give anything away, but this guy has sort of this ridiculous male pattern balding, similar to your character's nose and uh finds himself lonely 
due to this and then finally meets someone and he has to fight the urge not to indulge his fetish. And I will, I will leave it at that. So after ah. you watch grotesque by <laughs> the one and only Brandon Rhinus, then go find fetish. I think it's, you can watch it on Amazon prime or something. Uh, you mentioned doing your own films. Now that doesn't just mean you're writing them. You're now producing and directing. So what new challenges has that presented for you? And, and which uh, do you prefer? Do you prefer producing, directing, writing only? If you had to I'm, I'm, I say I'm writer number one, director number two, producer number three. Um, so I, I write a lot. I, I, I have directed uh, some short films like that I've been hired to write someone else's thing, but I don't do that very often. Uh, I like to direct my own stuff, but I will write most, like most of the way I make my living is writing scripts for other people because that's what, what pays better. But um, but yeah, I, I like being in control of my own project. And some of them, when I'm writing a script, some of them I know I'm never going to do this or probably never going to do it. It's like, this is one I'll try to sell some as I'm writing it. I'm like, this one's for me. Like, I want to do this one myself. And then I have others that are kind of like, eh, if I sell it in the next few years, I'll sell it. If the opportunity arises to make it, I'll make it. But of course, you know, the challenge is it, it always comes down to money. That's the thing. I'm, I mean, as a, you know, an indie filmmaker, I'm always finding ways to just cut costs, make things cheaper. And, but it's just somehow, it, even when very little cost, there's always cost. It just, it adds up, it adds up. And, and it's just the way it is. And part of the creativity is how do you make, how do you raise the money? And I hate doing that. Like, I wish I just had unlimited resources and I could just do what I want, but you know, the world doesn't work like that. And it always comes down to you get all excited about doing this movie, and then it's like, okay, we need this huge amount of money. How are we going to do that? And all of a sudden, you just feel like the air sucked out of the room. It's like, ah, great. Right. Now we have to have to do that. And somehow we figure it out. And I've gotten to a point now, after having done several films, it's getting easier. People are willing to to give us money to help out because they see like, hey, if I can get on board this project, get my name attached to it, it's going to turn out. It's going to get made for one. It's going to turn out fairly well. And they just want to be be part of it. So I think Grotesque was the first movie I've done where I didn't put like any of my own money into it. Usually I have to, at first I had to fund the entire thing. And eventually I, you know, find someone and we go 50-50. And then we'd have a small group together and, you know, or we do crowdfunding. And uh, for Grotesque, I don't think I put like any of my own money. And if I did, it was, you know, a very small amount. So it just shows that we've kind of proven ourselves that we're, it's hard to take, or it's hard to give money to someone that hasn't done it before. Because they could just take your money and run. They could just take your money and make a really bad project. I've kind of shown that I make something that's going to turn out well. People are going to like it. And it just kind of gets easier just with that. And you also, you also learn the tricks of like, what can we get for super cheap? You know, I know people that let us shoot in their house. that will save right. us on, the, you know, um, location costs, that kind of thing. And we just kind of know all these little tricks. So it kind of gets easier, but that's always the biggest barrier now. Like our team is so great. Like Julie and Sam, Elizabeth, like all the people mm -hmm. we work with are, we're just so great at getting things done, but you can only do so much until it's like, okay, we need the money now <laughs> to, to do right. it. And, and then, you know, and then it's, you know, a lot of just grinding gears and, and, you know, doing whatever you got to do to raise it so that you can make the magic happen. Yeah. In recent years, we've, been a lot more careful with our film investments, but we still hold sort of the general belief that you need to invest in the same filmmakers over and over and over again. And your ROI comes maybe 
10 years later. The ROI comes on the 10th film. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Or maybe the, if you're lucky, you have an auteur you're working with, maybe it comes on the fifth film or sixth film. So you're, you're basically a patron saint to this creative until they get to a place where what they make is award-winning level. And, and then you're, then all of a sudden you, you've sort of nurtured this stock, if you will, and yep. then you get the ROI there. But if you go into it as an investor wanting to get some, you know, huge nut out of the initial investment in a first time or second time filmmaker, you've really, you know, fooled yourself. And in, and in the words of the great Richard Feynman, uh, we must not fool ourselves and we are the easiest ones to fool. And, and, and it does happen. You do get unicorns, but just go in knowing that it's unlikely that you will have to basically hit the lottery on a first or second time filmmaker. And if you're a first or second time EP or producer, you might be the hindrance to that ultimate or top level success the film can have. Another thing uh, based on something you said there about running off with the money, if you are someone out there listening to this, if you are someone who's looking to invest in a filmmaker or a film outside of crowdfunding sources, so direct relationship where you get to help build the project, you have to just make sure you have um, an escrow account where that money goes to. And then that kind of prevents the filmmaker from, from running off with the money as, as Brandon put it. Uh, so always have like a escrow account that everybody has access to, or the key players have access to, so you don't feel like you're locked out of seeing the money flow. And then your legal team can help with that as well. The other option is to have um, a bank set up a draw system for your filmmaker so that it, it kind of works like a HELOC loan almost, but it's not, but it, it basically says the filmmaker can go to that bank and say, hey, we need 10,000 for this rental and then 10,000 and not a penny more is taken out, all right? Like, and then you know where the money flow's going. It's easy accounting if you end up getting the camera accountant on the other side of it. So just a couple of key, key points there. You mentioned that you typically do horror. What draws you to horror as your, as your favorite genre? And have you ever written a horror? I know you wrote a novel as well. We'll get to that. But have you ever written a screenplay that actually scared you as you were writing it. Ooh, that's, uh, I, uh, I can't think of one on top of my head. I just, I, I love horror. I've, um, it's kind of maybe the same reason that I kind of, I like heavy metal music. It's just, I like things that are just like edgier, you know, it's just mm -hmm. like it's heavier, it's edgier. It's not pop, you know, it's, uh, it's just got a harder core, I guess, for lack of a better word. And when I was younger, like I used to be scared, traumatized from horror movies. Like when I was, <laughs> Really, like you know, um, elementary school, like you know, I'd be to sleep over at a friend's house and we'd watch a horror movie, and I'd just be traumatized for weeks and just disturbed by it. Maybe you know, my active imagination, and I basically which, just which, stopped. Mo which movie did that to you, Brandon? Just the very first energetic. one was uh, Return of the Living Dead Two, Ooh. which is funny because it's basically a horror comedy. I you know, I got it on Blu-ray the other day, and it's like <laughs> yeah. this movie is not scary, but to ten-year-old Brandon, it's scary. Right. Um, and then Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which is probably my favorite of the series. That yeah. one traumatized me. I still liked them. That's a thing. It wasn't like I hated them. Yeah. It's like, I like this, but I'm traumatized. And I was probably like 
16 or 17 before I really started watching horror movies. Cause I just, it's not like I'd be scared of them anymore. I just gave up on them. I didn't think about it. I just watched other, you know, I'd watch star Wars, Robocop or whatever. And, and then one day I was like, I wonder, I could probably watch a horror movie. I'm not, you know, I'm old enough. I'm not going to be scared. So I watched some of the Jason movies, like the Friday the 13th. And I just like something clicked. I'm like, Oh my God, this is great. So I, I'd watch all of them, all the Freddies, all the um, Halloweens, all the leprechauns, all the Hellraisers, just, all these movies i just couldn't get enough and it's continued to this day that there's something there's something about them that other movies don't have you know other movies can be great um you know forrest gump is great yeah but it just it doesn't have that edge that like hellraiser has you know it's <laughs> certainly it's not a different yeah. kind of thing and it's almost like I, I like to be scary a bit you know where you know if you're just making all love stories it's one thing but people find out you make horror all of a sudden it's like um they're not scared of you but it's just like I don't know. This, it's hard to explain, but there's something about it. It's just like edgier. And it kind of makes you proud. And, and I really like the, the community around horror movies. Yeah. Like a lot of movies don't like drama, but it doesn't really have a community built around it. Whereas yeah. horror movies have a very definite fan base. And they're also, they're very forgiving. Like, well, the horror movie, I, I'd watch any cheap slasher movie and still like it. Uh, whereas a I drama, will, I will agree with that. Be, it has to be bigger. Right. So like horror fans, especially the market I'm working in, like I don't have millions of dollars to make Avengers. I have to make this, these cheap horror movies and just do the best we can. If we did like a, a drama, like people would rip us apart because it's like, why is it so cheap? And it's like, well, if we do it as a horror movie, it's like, that's what people are expecting. And they even like it because of that. People right. love grotesque because it doesn't look like a polished Hollywood movie. It looks like a indie horror movie, like from the seventies or eighties, which is kind of what people love. So yeah, I, I agree. We did a movie uh, named All Light Will End. And even though I think it has something like a four star rating on IMDb, <laughs> it has over 2000 ratings. Yeah, which is far, far more than some of the biggest Hollywood movies out. And it's all thanks to this great horror community that will watch your movie will rate your movie. The horror review and, and blog circuit is amazing, easily the best. So it was it was so much, uh, we, were, we were welcomed with such warm arms in the horror community when it was time to review the movie than in the sci-fi or drama or comedy realm with our other two feature films. So I will totally agree with you about the audience. The audience for horror, even though they're probably, you know, a bunch of weirdos. There are kind of weirdos and yeah. uh, God love them. They're, they're, they're cool people and they support independent film better than any other audience that I, yeah. that I can really think of. Um, you mentioned the horror films that you grew up on for me, nightmare on Elm street was the one as well, only because the villain existed in your own mind. So it seemed theoretically possible like to a kid, it's like, well, I go to sleep. I dream all the time if this guy shows up and am I strong enough, you know, to, to fight that off. Um, but let's talk about horror films from this year, 2022. Some of the best rated ones were Hellbender, The Innocents, You Won't Be Alone, Nanny, which I saw that was brilliant. I just found out the other day that The Menu with Ralph Fiennes uh, is considered a horror movie. Um 
which of those jumped out to you as something that's up Brandon's alley? And if none of them, what what was your favorite horror movie of 2022? Oh, God, it's hard to say. Honestly, I haven't, I didn't, haven't seen any of those ones you mentioned. I've watched a ton of horror movies. I must just be watching a different different list or something. I've heard <laughs> of all those ones. Um, I, 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 I don't really judge things by year because I just... I'll watch a bunch of things and it's like, when did this come out? Oh, 2014 or mm, 1999. Mm. Okay. Um, so I have a hard time knowing what came out. What Maybe year. we adjust it to what's the best horror film you've seen recently. Recently. It's a bit older now, but like, honestly, I like hereditary. I know. It's, really? It's, yeah, it's good. There's one. a lot of people like love it. A lot of people hate it. It's just probably going to be an endless internet debate over it, but I love it. I think it's awesome. Same with midsummer. I like, uh, Airy Aster, is that his name? The, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Character. Now, is that pronounced um, Midsummer or is it Midsummer? Mids, probably Midsummer, I think. Yeah. There are people um, that are sticklers for pronunciation on that, but it's A24 and they did Nanny as well. And I oh, watched yeah. watch Nanny at the, I watched it at the Nashville Film Festival. And I thought it was, outside of being, more spooky than scary but it, but besides being spooky and mystical it was just beautiful mm-hmm. it was just so well done you know it's done on that a24 level but if you think back to ex machina for example and like how that was shot and and how it sort of slowly let that sort of fear grow i just think it was shot well and if i can just say this it, it it's kind of an aside I don't, whoever, the, I, I used to know the DP's name. I'll, I'll look it up. But whoever the DP is, I have never seen black actors shot so well. Just the lighting, the color. Uh, it's really hard to shoot dark-skinned black people. It's really hard to photograph dark-skinned black people. It's just a fact. And they just, uh, the way it was done, it, no one's going to, Brandon, no one but this podcast, I mean, you were going to talk about this. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And and kudos to uh, the DP on that. Um, you did mention that your horrors tend to have a comedic theme. Uh, have you ever made a comedy or have you written a comedy yet that just isn't a horror yeah. at all? Yeah, like uh, my previous movie, Grotesque, was Hotbox, which is like a stoner comedy. And we actually got uh, endorsed by Tommy Chong, who's That's right, Hot from Box. Edmonton. Yeah. yeah. And it it was hard because everyone that watched it loved it. Like it has a very, very, very small cult following. Like it was a, <laughs> a very loved movie, but it just it doesn't comedy doesn't have the fan base that, that horror does. So like horror fans across the world will watch any horror movie they can get their hands on. A comedy, unless it has you know Adam Sandler or Will Ferrell or some person in it, it's it's so hard to get people to watch. Um, yeah, it's like you so almost just need a cameo from one of those guys and you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, if we could just had something, but we had it all Edmonton actors. And so the people that watched it, you know, oh, this is hilarious, but it just didn't get the reach we wanted. Um, Aren't the biggest cannabis companies in the world in Canada, though? What's that? Aren't the biggest cannabis companies in the world in Canada? That could be. It's, you know, it's legalized here. So we have uh, all mm-hmm. sorts of <laughs> facilities it, around. Still so. raise Canadian, maybe, Brandon? Yeah. Or? Yeah, I don't know. Well, that, we thought that that would, because I think we came out, it was like the week it was legalized, or it was like right at the same time we came out, and we were hoping that would be some sort of marketing <laughs> thing, and it just didn't. It's just like the movie kind of, here it is, and then just disappeared, and, uh, you know, just 
you know, I'm selling a bunch of DVDs now that I'm making DVDs. So we're selling right, quite a few right. of those. So it has a bit of life left in it, but um, yeah, it's, it's just hard. I want to do another comedy because I like it, but just knowing going in, it's a hard to justify that we're going to make something that no one's going to watch. If we How make another hard horror, was it to keep the horror out of that, out of hot box? There, there, I guess there's a little bit of horror because part of it is uh, this group of goth girls do, do much uh, magic mushrooms. And they think there's a serial killer at the party. Okay. Um, so they're all freaking out that there's a killer when, of course, it turns out there's not. And so nothing really happens. But there is a little bit of that kind of horror to it. But it's it's not a horror movie at all. It's it's straight up, you know, comedy. Yeah. But I, I, I want to. I do want to do a straight up horror. I've done some short horror films. Mm-hmm. But so many times, even in the comics, like I try to make something serious or scary. And then the comedy just kind of seeps in. And next thing you know, it's hilarious. Um, Where do you get that from? Is it like your parents or did you grow up watching a particular comedian or, or sitcom or show? I don't know. Like drove it's, your comedic it just, taste? It's just, I don't know. It's just something that's like ingrained in me. And uh, yeah, like our co- like comic book that me and my uh, producing partner, Adam Soros, Chuck came up with called Ghoul Squad. And, you know, it's about, you know, a bunch of like monster type characters. And it's supposed to be serious. As I started writing it, it just got funnier and funnier and funnier. And then, of course, everyone that reads it, like, oh, this is hilarious. You like, can't well, it's help not yourself. really supposed to be. And then it's yeah. like, ah, screw it. I'll, I'll just make it a comedy, right? And then, you know, it got popular because it was funny. So it's not like what I'm doing is wrong. But I do kind of want to do for what we're doing grotesque too at the moment or we're preparing for it. But oh, cool. I want to do something that's flat out like, let's try to do something scary and just see what happens. You still work with Adam? Yeah, somewhat. He's uh, he's kind of taken the back seat to things for the most part. Yeah, he's you know he's kind of involved if I need be, but he's kind of took his own path and stuff. So I'm basically uh, kind of doing my own thing now. Got it. Plans for him to come back, or like, did he did he move out of media and entertainment altogether? No, he still we still live together. He's still my roommate. Oh, okay. um, got it. So it's got like it. we see each other all the time, but it's like <laughs> I moved on to the you know, his specialty was kind of the, just like the artwork and stuff. And I've moved into film for the most part and writing novels. So it's kind of not as much for him to do. So, uh, you know, but yeah, that's a good question. I'd love to have him come back. He's always been supportive. He'll share my stuff and, you know, I'll run my ideas by him and I'll show him things I'm working on. So he's there, you know, for moral support, but he just doesn't actively work in it uh, so much anymore. Got it. By the way, the cinematographer for the movie Nanny by A24 is Rena Yang. Kudos to you, Rena. Love your work. Uh, you mentioned selling scripts earlier in the conversation. Can you just share with the audience your process for share, for selling your scripts? Like, has there yeah, is there anything like tried and true? Any tactics or tools you use to do that? There's. I've tried different methods. I've kind of found what works for me, and other people might even have a better system that I don't know about. I might. Whenever I talk to other writers, I like to know like how do you do it because maybe there's some little tidbit there I can pick up. But right. um, like I use services like uh, like Ink Tip and Screenwriting Staffing. You know, you pay mm-hmm. them twenty bucks a month or whatever it is, and they'll let you know like producers are looking for this type of script, and you would just reach out to that producer if you have it. So I do those, and like I write fast, like I write a ton of things, so I always have things to pitch. Yeah. But those kind of services are good because you can also see what's popular. So for Ink Tip, if I see week after week, it's like nonstop, like, oh, they're looking for romantic comedies. I'm like, like okay, well, I should write a romantic comedy. So I wrote one and uh, probably like within a week, bam, optioned it. 
wow. um, just because it's like there's a big demand for it. And, you know, for a while, it'll be like, your know, romantic comedies are big for a while, and then they'll kind of go away. And then I remember for about a year, it was um, any movie with, like, Chinese elements because, oh, wow. you know, the China, the Chinese government was, like, investing a bunch of money into, like, you know, basically Western written scripts that could be made in China. Right. So it's like, if it's a story that has Chinese people, anything like that, like they're looking for it. And then that dried up and then that's not really a thing anymore. But, uh, you know, horror has always kind of been a, a staple, but then like action movies seem to be big now. It just seems like everyone's looking for action movies. So like, guess what? As soon as we're done the things I'm working on, I'm going to write one or two action movies because I know they're in demand. So I'd, uh, I'd pitch to those people. I have a database I keep of um, like a spreadsheet of who I pitched to when, what their response was. And anyone who responds favorably, like either by buying the script or, you know, we love it, but like, you know, it's too expensive or anything like that. I kind of keep a separate list of them. And they're the first ones I go to the next time. I'll say, hey, remember me? I'm the guy that wrote this other thing that you liked. I have a new script. Are you interested? Just so I can kind of, keep that stable of people a little bit closer. And a lot of them, even if they don't themselves buy one of my scripts, if they know about me, they frequently tell someone else about me, by the way, like I know this other guy, he's looking for a horror script, talk to him. And I've gotten Got some it. either jobs or sold scripts that way. And like, I'll go over just anything like Twitter um, or Facebook. You'll frequently see things people will like how I met Jarvis when I sold my first script. Uh, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm looking for a horror script. I'm looking for a sci-fi script. Um, send me a DM. So I'll send them a DM. And, you know, sometimes they'll ignore me. Sometimes they'll like the script. But I start building their relationships. But, I mean, I pitch, like, 10, 20, 50 times per week of mm, just, like, wow. I have a new script. And and every, you know, year or two, because I'm always getting better as a writer. So if, even if I read a script from three years ago, even though I was selling scripts back then, if I read them, it's like, oh my God, like, this is embarrassing. I, I can't show this. It's not that good. So I'll rewrite it and yeah. make it up to my current standard. And sometimes that's all it takes is like, I just got to be a little bit better and then it'll sell. Um, Brilliant. And, and so on Inktip, and, and was the second one called Screenwriter Staffing? Screen uh, Screenwriting Staffing. Yeah, it's like SS Screenwriting Staffing Utopia, I think is the official name. Screenwriting Staffing Utopia. So on that, you get to name your price. Is that correct? Yeah, basically, they'll just send you pay 20 bucks a month and they'll just send you like every few days, you'll get an email that says uh, this person from this company is looking for horror scripts that are set on an island. So if you have that, uh, send them an email. So if but, you have a you, script but, like that. But you get to say what you want to charge for your script, though. Yeah, you you would contact them directly and work out a deal. Screenwriting staff, they have nothing to do with it. They're, they just They just basically collect and send you the information of who's looking for what. Got it. Um, so, so they're you, just, you just, so they're just collecting subscription fees then, Brandon, right? And then the deal yeah, they, they, is just, they take your 20 bucks a month and that's it. So that's it. Okay. Which is so, pretty good because. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Like I've had people say like, oh, like ink tips too expensive or like, but it's like, you know, they're like 20, 30 bucks a month. But the thing is, if you sell one script, that's going to pay, that's going to cover like years worth of that subscription. So it's worth having that just to have like get a couple sales. So um so yeah th those are definitely worth checking out there's there's other services like that i've tried some of the other ones and haven't had any success with them for whatever reason so i've stopped using them but the ones that work just work i even had um i've had luck it's probably like four or five years ago now i spent like an entire summer um 
cold emailing 10 producers every day for wow. like three, four months. And you know, I, I would just go on uh, IMDb Pro, type in the name of a horror movie, and I would just like find the producer, send him an email. And then you know, at some some place on the page, you would say like, uh, if you like this movie, you might also like this movie because it's similar. So I would click on all of those, and then I would pitch either the director or the uh, the producer. And then I, I just kept doing that until I pitched like hundreds and hundreds, and probably ninety percent ignored me. A couple of them responded, you know, unfavorably, or you know, they weren't interested. But one guy was like, "Yeah, your script sounds interesting. Send it to me." And he didn't buy it. But he referred me to someone else who ended up buying it. And at the time, that was like the most money I'd ever made on a script. So basically, it was worth me spending all that time doing it um, just to get that one sale. So I don't really cold email anymore. Maybe I don't know if I should or not. I don't really like like doing it because I, you know, I don't want to come across as spamming people. Right. Um, but sometimes it's good just to reach out to people and and anyone that that reacts favorably to my pitch. Like, you know, let's say they like it for whatever reason, I'll go and I'll add them on Twitter. I'll try to add them on Facebook just so they're in my circle all of a sudden. So all of a sudden they'll start seeing my posts. They might see my name pop up once in a while. So when it comes time, they need to hire a writer. My name might be the one they remember. And so it's yeah. good just to have people like that in your vicinity. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. You have so much skin in the game and that's really what it requires to be successful at anything. You know, when you told me the story about friends who think ink tip is too expensive, I immediately thought everything is expensive if you're bad. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't but matter what your field is. If you're bad at it, you're going to pay more than the person who's good at it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've had people too. They're like, you know, ink tip, ink tip doesn't work. And it's like, well, that it's, it, you can't say the service doesn't work. Is it, you know, it's just there. It's like, if your script sucks, no one's ever going to buy it, no matter what service <laughs> you use, right? So it's like, it'd be like, right. you know, Craigslist doesn't work. It's like, what do you mean it doesn't work? If, if what you're selling is a piece of crap or you're charging too much, like it, there's no hope for it. So it's like, yeah. as long as you're selling a good product, it'll sell. Um, they're just like the marketplace for it. So it's it all comes down to you. But yeah, like a bad script will never sell. Yeah, yeah. Great point. You mentioned as well earlier in the in this conversation, raising capital for your films has gotten easier as you do more films. Are there any methods that you can share about capital raise, things that have worked for you, things that definitely don't work? Any any advice in that regard? Yeah, basically we just like I've I've cranked out so many things like over the last few years, like like I, I mean, I've technically been doing this all my life, you know, like high school, but I really just kind of dabbled in it until about 2015, where that's where I started, like, let's do this for real. Right. And since I, I, mean, I, I think I have like 60 IMDb credits now or something, like I've made a 78. I said, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, <laughs> like I've worked hard to like, because, you know, sometimes I could tell people, I mean, everyone, there's so many people that talk a big game in this industry. Yeah, And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, like, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Sometimes when I talk to people, I can almost see in their eyes that it's like, they don't believe me. They're just kind of like, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I got to wait for them. They got to go look on IMDb and be like, oh, shit, mm -hmm. okay, you are for real. Mm -hmm. um, so once you could prove you could do that, and it's like, yeah, you go on IMDb, you go to my YouTube channel, you can see these are all the things I made. It's like, I can do it. So you, yeah. you give me $5,000 to put the word something, 
it's going to get done. And this yeah. is the kind of quality I can make. So people can kind of judge for themselves and, and people get excited about that is just the constant promotion, right? They just, some people like to be involved. And one guy gave me some money for our latest film and he's like, I just, I just want my name on the poster. That's it. And oh, I was wow. like, that's it. It's like, to me, I wouldn't even honestly care that much about it, but to him, he's just so excited about it. And he came to our premiere and got all the cast and crew to sign the poster. And, and uh, so some people like that kind of thing. And, you know, we've done crowdfunding, you know, and that raised a little bit of money that we haven't perfected it. We've raised, you know, small amounts, but, but um, I remember at the grotesque premiere, it just in the lobby chatting with people after the movie let out, um, we had a few people that are like, yeah, I feel I can, I can kick in some money if you want to do another one. And by the time we left, it's like, you know, we have enough money just from chatting with people in the lobby to probably shoot a very, very low budget movie. So it's like, yeah. shit, let's do it. Um, so once, once the ball gets rolling and then you kind of develop the confidence where you could, you know, approach someone who has, you think has money and like, look, this is what we want to do. We just don't have the money for it. Is there any way you could like give us some money or, and, and <laughs> once you kind of do that at first, it's like, you know, everyone hates asking, you know, begging for money, but right, of course. They, Usually they're like, yeah, I, I can kick in a bit or they have some sort of resources. You know, you can film in my house. I own a farm. You can shoot at. I have. And it's like, oh, OK, now the pieces are kind of coming together. And and like you said earlier, too, like we've taken a lot of money from people and, you know, we've never promised them like a big return. We've always been upfront and honest. But when the movie's done, it's kind of like, look, if, when we start making money of this, if we pay your money back, we're back to zero and we can't continue. Right. If you want to roll the movie, the money over, we can use that money to make another movie and keep the whole thing going. And honestly, we've never had a single person ask for their money back, whether it's, you know, $20,000 or whether it's, you know, $100. They're all just like, yeah, I see the value in doing another one and another one and another one. And then once the ball is kind of going, then it's like, it might be grotesque two before we hit it big or grotesque three or the next horror or maybe the next romantic comedy. But like you said, it might just take, because Jarvis Griner, the director of John 316, he said the same thing you do is like, it's not going to be a one movie, you get rich. It's going to yeah. be like the 10th movie. It's like, you got to be committed. And that's where everyone else will drop out. Like even since I started, some people have given up already. You know, they make you know a couple shorts and then maybe they make one feature or they started to do it and then it didn't work out. And eventually they get a day job and they, you know, they just quit. And then yeah. there's the people that just grind it out and do it over and over and over again. And eventually it's going to be like, you know, hopefully the money will start coming and then you'll catch a big break or you just have a big enough track record that you can do whatever you want. I'm starting to notice it now. It's like, it's no longer extremely hard to get a project off the ground. Now we just say, yeah, we're doing grotesque too. And the, the gears start going all of a sudden, everyone, they believe us. They're like, yeah, I'll start getting the uh, locations. And <laughs> next thing you know, it's like, I'm busy on other stuff. And the movie's almost getting made without me. Cause it's just, you know, we announced it's going to happen. And, and all of a sudden everyone's like, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. And it's like, okay, we've got the whole crew filled and most of the cast. And I'm like, I'm not even finished the second draft of the script yet. It's just, um, it's become that easy to get people excited. So if I can imagine 10 years from now, um, where we just have bigger budgets and even more experience, it's just going to be so easy to just, here's what we're doing. And we just know how to execute. Yeah. And it's like, it's hard at the beginning, except at the beginning, people wouldn't give us money. I remember just like, no one would give us money. 
um, you know, we do, we did a crowdfunding for I'm in love with a dead girl, my short film. And of course that was just, you know, my parents, my brother, my grandparents, uh, just family and friends of the people making the movie that'll, (laughs) it's like, I'll give you a chance. So it's like, all right. So we got enough to do that movie. But after that, it's like, you can only go back to the the family well so many times before, you know, they're just not going to give it to you anymore. So now we need, you know, for crowdfunding, we need strangers to like our stuff. And that's where we're at, where all of a sudden it's like, holy cow, people that like our movies, all of a sudden they're willing to just give us money in exchange for some sort of thing over Indiegogo to help get the movie made. And that was before Grotesque, like for Grotesque 2, I'm kind of interested like how much bigger we've gotten because like just online we're we have a way bigger fan base like i'm not used to this level of um attention from a movie because hot box was kind of moderate grotesque is like you know for me it's like an international sensation um (laughs) you know nothing compared to like hollywood standards but for me it's like whoa this movie is like big like people are still met like messaging me about how how they love it and it's their favorite movie of 2020 and or 2022 and so I think when it comes time to raise money again, it's just going to be a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, but that's what it comes down to. And it's not always cash in hand. It's just like, what can we do to make it cheaper? And sometimes someone's like, you know, like I got a summer house that you could use. No one's in it all summer. And it's like, okay, well, what if we move it from a campground to a summer house? And that way, instead of having to rent a campground for a week and spending you know, thousands of dollars, we spend zero. And yeah. it's like the story is exactly the same. So it's like, ah, that just frees up like three grand in our budget. And then it's like, okay, how do we cut like all these other costs? And then it's like, you know, even on grotesque, it's or, you know, other movies we've done, like the prop food that we have, like in the scenes, we could also use to feed ourselves and the crew and, you know, just anything like that, that um, a Hollywood movie would bother with, right? Because they could just spend money. Right. We're just like, how do we just, you know, be efficient with every single dollar we spend. And then we can, you know, make these movies for very, very cheap. And people are kind of shocked at how we did it. And it's like, you know, just buy things from Dollarama. We want to, you know, split a head open and people think we use some sort of crazy high tech way. And it's like, no, we just bought a $4 Dollarama styrofoam head and then like painted it. And then the, it filled the inside with jello. You know, it's like the yeah. whole thing costs like six bucks. And, uh, so once you kind of learn those things, and I mean, other people are more skilled than I am at that, and I'm sure like all indie filmmakers are in the same boat, but you know, you just kind of just be smart with your money. And once you get everyone excited about it, like everyone brings their resources and, you know, we're not like a big union shoot where there's like very strict rules over who touches what, right. you know, it's like we have actors that are helping carry furniture into the house and, uh, you know, like just, you know, everyone's helping decorate and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, it's a, it's a, definite team effort and I, I just kind of love that that everyone's on board so it's, you know it's hard to raise the money but once you announce that we're doing it it's like a it's like a steamroller it's hard to stop and actually it's yeah. uh, julie whalen my co-producer on grotesque i kind of owe it to her that it's even got made because we were actually in pre-production on a different movie it was supposed to be the like the follow-up to hotbox it's called one night drunk <laughs> and we we'd started pre-production on that. We were like just like a week into it. And I finished, it was like the first or second draft of grotesque. And I just showed it to her. Like we, this is another project we could do down the road. And she read it and she's like, Oh my God, this is awesome. Let's do this instead. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, fucking hey, yeah, let's do it. And I remember at the time we had 
some money from Hotbox. We had something. We had like a you know few thousand dollars. It's like we have enough to shoot for like a couple days. That's it. So she's like, well, let's do it. Let's shoot like two days. And if we run out of money, can we wait a year and then shoot more? But like, let's just start. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Like so many people, we got to wait till we have our $1.5 million budget. And even <laughs> movies here in Edmonton, there's things I've written that they're trying to raise like, you know, 2 million bucks. And like five years later, we're still trying to raise 2 million bucks. Um, meanwhile, I've cranked yeah. out like four features. So it's like, you know what? It's like, we have enough to get started. Let's just shoot and then kind of hope for the best. Barring, you know, the earth getting hit by an asteroid or something like that. It's like, this movie will get done. It's like, we'll get it done somehow. Yeah. And, and tenacity and miracles is what it takes to make any independent film. And if I could distill down some of the lessons in, in what you just shared is one, knowing the different types of capital is really important. Capital is not just money. And then two is no mercenaries. I think, you know, when Nick and I started back in 2015, we got really lucky to work with the great Rashina Nash, who's now writing and directing for Disney. And she had hired out a crew of mercenary filmmakers for a comedy special we were going to shoot. And what we noticed is that as soon as that thing was done, they, this, or rather, as soon as we wrote them their checks, they were out of there. Mm -hmm. uh, they were gone. We didn't hear from them again. No check-ins, no, how did this go? They were there to do a job. They did a job and left. And it's not a great way to make a film. So you want to make films with people that you work with where you can, you know, um, have an expectation of how things are going to go and know that everybody's in camp with you and you lose together and you win together. Uh, I, I might take a left turn here just to mention to the audience that in 2019, you got worldwide distribution for a comic named Chainsaw Reindeer in we mentioned before that you co-founded Higher Universe Comics. And so if you go to Higher Universe Comics website, I think it's higheruniversecomics.com or higheruniverse.com, uh, or maybe it's CA. You it's, can, uh, I think it's thehigheruniverse.com. Yeah, thehigheruniverse.com. You start to see all these characters and you have, so you have a character. These are some of your character names. Acid Flashback Cat. <laughs> Beaky McWeisenstein. Yeah, that's one of Adams. Helmut von Lederhosen. <laughs> Gormfloth. And then out of the blue, there's Darius Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come up with your character names? How do you do these? Uh, some of those ones you mentioned were Adams, like kind of before, it's probably like, say, 2012-ish. Yeah. Um. Adam Storischuk, my roommate slash friend slash, you know, co-creator of Higher Universe, we'd come up with all these crazy ideas. A lot of them, a lot of those are ones he came up like in high school, like in probably in the 80s or 90s, whatever that was, like yeah. they're pretty old ideas that he had. And of course, he's he's not really a storyteller so much, but he's good at drawing and coming up with concepts. Mm -hmm. So he'd come up with these things and I would make a story out of it. I'd turn it into a story and write it. And he's like, oh, you know, and that kind of where it went. And when we started doing comics, a lot of the comics were his original ideas that we turned into something concrete. 
And then when I started the website, I was like, you know what? I want to put all the characters on there just so there is like a record. You know, no one could say we stole it. No one could rip me off. It's like, hey, it's on there. I created this thing or we created this thing. Mm-hmm. So all those characters are from different things. And some of them, like Darius Washington, is from, uh, <laughs> I wrote a pilot episode for a, it's like a children's, um, actually, honestly, I can't remember. It's been so long, I can't even remember which series. He might be from Detective Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I wrote a, a story about a, a detective dog, and he has this group of kids that work with them, and they have like a junior detective's uh, thing. I think that's what that's from. And Gorm, Gormflath, funny enough, the horror movie that we're shooting at the moment that we you know just finished wrapping on uh, Monday, I took that name, and um, one of the characters is named that. And I remember oh. someone's like, it's like, Brandon, I Googled Gormflath um, <laughs> on Google, and like your website came up. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm allowed to steal my own names. You know, it's like I yeah. came up with that one, and I want to come up with another character. So, yeah, so we have all these crazy things. Like Acid Flashback Cat is part of my stoner kid world. Mm-hmm. And actually, stone sucks. My, uh, my Facebook got hacked a few weeks ago, and oh, no. someone basically took away, like they put themselves as admin of the stoner kid page and deleted me and i can't get it back now so basically oh, someone stole wow. my freaking page and that was like my, my most successful page so um so basically what did facebook say about that they they're so freaking hard to get a hold of and they're like you know i got my personal account back got control of that but i i just like tried a million different ways and they, you know it's just hard to reach them and they were not helpful and basically their, their response was like you need permission from the admins and it's like, I am the admin. It's like the guys stole it. They're not going to give me permission to, to get it back. So, so it might, it's probably still up on Facebook, but it's not mine anymore. But um, I, might produce, like, of, I made a graphic uh, novel about him and stuff, but acid flashback cat was one of the, one of his like friend, I don't know, friends or whatever, but it's one of those associated characters. So. Brandon, that sucks, man. I'm sorry to hear that. And, and you know, it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where somebody steals his car and this is the 90s, so he has a car yeah. phone. And Kramer's like, call him. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, call him. And he picks up the phone and calls him, and the thief answers the phone. Yeah. <laughs> and Jerry's like, yeah, hey, did you steal like my car? And the guy's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've checked the page. So I, just, like, I just wonder if you could, like, if Facebook expects you to reach out to this guy and be like, hey, did you steal my did you steal my Facebook page? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, nothing I've been there, nothing's changed on it. Like he hasn't, it still says created by Brandon Rhinus, as far as I know. So it's not like they did anything with it, but it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's it's like, we have so many, I think we have like hundreds of characters that are just in one form or another. And if I had unlimited money and resources, like I turn everything into like a book or a comic book or a movie or an animated series. And actually, if you go on YouTube, I made uh, two, two cartoons of stoner kid. Um, there's two, like, they're like five or 10 minute animated episodes. Um, I don't think acid flashback cats in it, but, um, some of the other characters are. Yeah. I'll check that. I'll check that out for sure. What, what apps are you using or did you and Adam use to draw and create these characters? Um, for most of them were just Adam's drawings on paper that he did, um, to really? get animated, a, a guy here in Edmonton, um, I really didn't know how to do animation, but he had this idea because he was into like making video games. Like I'm not a video game guy, but apparently there's some sort of program where you can, you know, design your own backgrounds and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he's like, 
what we could do is we could design a background in the, this video game thing and then take the drawing and then animate the lips. And, and I was like, that sounds like it'll work to me. So I basically just gave him, <laughs> I wrote the script, gave it to him. He used his own voice and everything and, um, and did all the animation. So it's, you know, it's not extremely high tech, but it's funny enough. Yeah. Um, and I think Adam did, I can't remember if Adam did all the drawing, but he did a lot of the drawings for it. Um, but yeah. for most of anyone pockets, judges I, I, that process, just go see the original pilot for South Park. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like that, right? Where it's yeah. like if you look past how bad it looks, it's actually kind of funny. But mm-hmm. but for the most part, like I hire a lot of artists too. Like uh, my comics, um, Chainsaw Reindeer was a guy named Carlos Trigo who lives in uh, Spain. He was the artist for that one and probably made the comic what it is because it's a uh, it's my most famous comic. Mm-hmm. That's that's a tremendous, and I would recommend for this audience to go out and and search for Chainsaw Reindeer and 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 check it out. It's still doing well, right? Yeah, it's um, that one was not published by me. That one was it was actually picked up by Action Lab Comics. So they're oh, the, wow. the people that that um, and, you know they 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 have a bigger reach than me. So that was kind of cool that it was actually in um, comic stores like all over the world. I remember one of my some guy I know on Facebook lives in Poland. He's like, "Yeah, I was at my comic store and your comic was there." It's like, "Oh, and it was in the Philippines and Australia and like North America." That's super um, cool. My, my so favorite part cool. about Chainsaw Reindeer, having not read it, Brandon, is closing my eyes and getting all the various images that come when you combine the word reindeer with chainsaw. Yeah, and there's there's a, a myriad ways. Uh, you can go with your imagination once you <laughs> combine those two words. Uh, I'm curious which creatives, I don't think you've ever mentioned this to me before, but what creatives do you most admire in the film industry? And and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes them sort of stand apart for you? It's, it, it's, kind of hard to answer because it's changed so much over time i remember when i first started doing movies um it was basically quentin tarantino i watched uh, reservoir dogs mm, yeah and i was like yeah this is what i want to do with my life um and i just love tarantino and of course like every writer my early scripts were all this tarantino ripoffs you know yeah. <laughs> way too much dialogue a lot of gun stuff and guys trying to be cool and you know just you know a 16 year old's version you know knocking off tarantino they're pretty horrible um, over the years, you know, I still don't mind Tarantino, but I've just, my tastes have changed and I'm just like, I'm not a big fan anymore. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to the point, I was a big Stephen King fan for writing too. And even like now it's like, yeah, I don't like Stephen King as much anymore. Just, you know, my tastes changed. So they, those guys kind of inspired me to kind of like, I can do this. If they can do it, I can do it. I'm going to follow in their footsteps. And I've gotten to the point now where there's a lot of people whose work I like, but I don't find myself really... I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't find myself like looking up to anyone anymore. Mm, okay. uh, there's still people like, you know, David Fincher, for example. It's like, yeah, like he's good. I like his movies. Uh, um, but I'm just so bent on like doing my own thing. So it's rare that I see someone. It's like, I want to be like that. And it's like, no, I want to be like myself. I, I honestly, I'd rather make far less money and just do what I want to do mm-hmm. than follow in someone else's footsteps. So I'm always, I mean, my stuff is probably similar to other things. Even grotesque is probably similar to other movies or things, but 
it's still my thing and i'm starting yeah. to get to the point even people on my team are starting to realize like oh that's a like that's a brandon thing right you kind of start to see you know patterns emerge and kind of themes in there so i really just want to forge my own path and i really have respect for other people that do that because i mean there's a million hollywood directors and you can't really tell them apart you know it's just all the movies kind of look the same and it's like so what, what's your job really just like, <laughs> it's like is a director even needed on a movie it's like they all look the same anyway so like yeah like, no POV. You know, and then there's some movies like you're saying some of those horrors where it's like ah that's different like now i can see this is a, like a real human making this thing and it starts to have its own kind of vibe to it and i'd honestly i used to always talk about kevin smith yeah, and then yeah. people would be like oh you're like you're a big kevin smith fan i'm like not really i, I really don't like kevin smith i don't like his movies but i like the fact that he has his own style like he's making his own you thing you know a kevin smith movie when you see a kevin smith yeah movie. yeah and it's like even though Absolutely. i don't particularly it's not my taste i respect the fact that he's making his own thing yeah and i think especially nowadays where it's kind of becoming easier to make your own thing it's not like you know 90s and earlier where or even you know heaven forbid like 40s or 50s where like you had to work for the studio or you're not you can't make a movie there right. was just no way to get it done Whereas now anyone can make a movie in their own house on their phone. That's a great they, point. People talk, you know, so all of a sudden everyone has that opportunity. The downside that is there's a whole lot of crap out there. Anyone can make stuff and it's hard to rise above everything else. But all of a sudden, everyone I, I want to interject voice. on that though, Brandon, because that's a great point. Many of our guests, Brandon, have said what you said, but not in that way. It's kind of a touchstone. I want to jump on it real quick yeah. before I forget. We've heard, you know, a handful of people say, pick up your phone, shoot something. You can make your own stuff these days. So that's not necessarily novel. But this idea that if you were in the 40s, you either worked for the studio, you couldn't make it. And I think that's the part that's taken for granted, which is that everybody knows you can go make your own thing now. But what would you do if you were in a time where if you were outside industry, you were just stuck. There's just, mm -hmm. there's, it just, there is no consumer product for it. And it makes me think about what industries exist today in which the everyday quote unquote prosumer is excluded from that work or that creativity or that process. Um, I hadn't ever thought about it in the lens, through the lens of what if you, were an absolute slave to the movie industry. Like you're basically forced to be a consumer or nothing else if you didn't gonna want to go work for them. So yeah, it's yeah, it was like, I mean, none of us were around in those days, but like it like like they're writers a lot of time in like the 20s and 30s, like you would it'd be a nine to five job. You would work for whatever studio, MGM, and you yeah. would sit at a desk writing their scripts from nine, you'll take your lunch break, come back. And they would tell you, okay, when you're done that one, uh, this is our next movie. And that would be your job. There's yeah. no like, hey, I got my own idea for a movie. It's like, no, the, the CEO of the company or whoever does that, they, they come up with the movies. You're a secretary. You sit there and write it. And yeah, if you wanted to be an actor and the studio didn't hire you, you're not an actor. That was just. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's literally the equivalent, Brandon, of saying, go out and build your own car. Like yeah. a movie is that complex where it's like, what would happen if someone democratized the making of a vehicle so yeah. that you could, if you had the ambition 
and talent could go out and just build your own car in your driveway and then just drive it. Yeah. Like that's what it's like. Yeah. The fact that this was democratized probably in large part, thanks to Kodak originally, but like this thing was democratized for everyday consumers. Like, wow. I thank you for that. In a way that's great. It's great because I couldn't operate even making comic books, like even in my childhood in the nineties, like it just wasn't, possible you had to work for marvel or dc or image comics when they came out like it was a big effort to make a comic where now if you could draw like you could pull the resources together and there's you can get your stuff out there yeah the downside is there's a lot of stuff out there but the thing is now everyone has the opportunity it's kind of like with music like you know if you're in beethoven's days unless you're like one of the seven richest families that can have a piano like and you're educated you can't do music it's just impossible whereas now you don't even need an instrument like anyone can make their music and release it the same day. And it's in a way, it's, it's just kind of great that people have that voice. Cause I don't think people should ever be like, make, not made to shut up, but like they're basically held back because you just don't have the resources. You have all these ideas, but there's no way to execute it. So I kind of like that now you can do it. Yeah. And, but even though it is possible, anyone can make a movie on their phone easily. Most people, even if they want to do it, they won't. Because so much of what we do comes down to just your own personal effort and drive. And most people will just not do it because it just does take effort. And it's it's easier to not do it. It's easier to give up. And most people will. Or they'll do it so infrequently and they won't try hard enough that they'll never get good at it. So the people that do get good at it are always, there's always going to be like, you know, the cream rises to the top. There's always going to be those people that are just so damn good and they work so hard. And their thing, their their product is so good, they're going to be popular. There's always going to be the musical artists that take 99% of the money because they're so popular and they're so good. So even though everyone has a chance, doesn't mean they're going to make it because it still comes down to you got you to gotta do stuff. You have to come up with it and execute it yourself. I mean, even if you're using like new AI technology to create things, you still have to be the one to initiate it. You yeah. know, you can't just sit there like thinking things in your brain and they pop up on YouTube. It doesn't work like that. You have to somehow initiate it. And it's so much easier to scroll on your phone and just, you know, waste time. And that thing is, that's what most people are going to do. So if you have a little bit of talent and a lot of hard work, you can get to the point where you're making money at these things. And if you're just smart enough to kind of see what's working, see what's not. And, you know, I've just kind of developed what I do over time and, it's like, you know, I make a little money selling comics, a little money selling books, a little money on YouTube, a little writing uh, screenplays, a little off making the movies. And I kind of juggle the the money around and this thing will pay for this thing. And I take out just enough to pay my rent and my bills. And it's like, now I got my little mini empire going where it's like, I've made all this stuff and I'm known for it. And I can come up with things that I want and other people have joined my team. So anyone, like, I don't have, I think any talent that, any other person could not have or easily develop and they could probably do it a lot faster than me because you know my early younger days i didn't try very hard i wish i did mm-hmm. but i kind of waited till later in life to even get started so if you're like super young it's like just bust your ass on this and you'll kind of start getting stuff out there and you could make a name for yourself because no matter what you do no matter kind of like what weird shit you're into there's going to be a lot of people around the world that are like that and the early days, you know, when you only had one TV channel, yeah. it's like whatever was on TV had to appeal to the a mass amount of people. So if you're into something different, there's just no TV for you. You got to do something else. 
Yeah. Whereas now, like anything you want, if you're into some sort of weird type of story, there's going to be enough people in the world that if they all pay a tiny bit for it, it's enough to kind of get you some income. Yep. So you could just have your own little fan base. And that's what people do with their YouTube channels. There's all sorts of crazy things on there that you never would have dreamed of. But it's like, what, 100,000 people watch this video? Like, what the hell is that? Um, so there will be people that will respond to your voice. Because, like, people are sick of just, you know, Hollywood. You know, big budget Hollywood, that is what entertainment is. There's so many people that want something else. Like, I don't want that. I want, I just want something different. I don't even know what it is until I see it. But if you go out and no matter who you are and you make something, whether it's a comic book or a movie, and like, this is my thing, this is my voice, this is the way I see the world, this is my story, and you put it up there, there's going to be people that are like, yes, like, I never thought of this before. I love this. When's when's the next one? When are you doing part two? Um, I want another video. And all of a sudden you're like, ah, now I'm onto something. And now you have options. Like, can I make this, should I make this longer, shorter? Like, should I do this as episodes? And, you know, I have my found footage, uh, series i'm haunted mm-hmm. and i released it as a bunch of like tiny episodes that were released like in real time on youtube and i was like okay it wasn't that popular i kind of gave up on it and then i was like wait a minute what if i combined it all together into a movie so i did that released it as a, a movie and now all of a sudden people on the internet are talking about it because it's uh you know there's found footage fans that just love found footage movies right and i don't i don't think it turned out particularly well um I could have done better at it, but people love it. And all of a sudden I'm making money at it. And it's like, wow. Like, so as long as you're smart about it and you just kind of work hard and then you can, you can make it in this business. There's no one holding you back anymore. Like it's not the 1940s, it's the 2020s. And, and, and the talent doesn't come down so much to um, like, even like the, the quality of the effects or anything like that. Those are just kind of side issues. Everyone still loves a great story. And right. we see that in Hollywood, how like they spend hundreds of millions on the absolute best special effects you can imagine. And the movie just bombs because it's boring. No one wants to watch it. It's like, who cares? Yeah. Whereas like just some guy talking on YouTube is like a multimillionaire because he's saying interesting things. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Like if you're just putting out interesting content and interesting stories done in an interesting way that's kind of all it takes to, to kind of make it in this business. And then other people start noticing and they want to jump on onto your boat. It's like, I want to be right. a part of that. And then all of a sudden, Hey, I got these like people that want to help. So you kind of see what resources they have. And then you kind of becomes a team effort. So that's what I like about this business. Is I've just grown, grown relationships with people on my team yeah. and we've kind of figured out what we're good at. And next thing you know, we can make movies like it's, it's it's such a great feeling it's a fascinating time because you could ask somebody would you rather uh be in black adam which kind of feels like it fits the criteria of what you just described a, a very very big budget movie that was hard to get into the rock's character like there wasn't anything there that seemed super interesting or juicy and the movie made a ton of money but didn't probably make the money it wanted to make, or you could be like Thomas flight on YouTube who has just under, or just at 700,000 subscribers makes a ton of money, just reviewing great films and talking on YouTube. And he probably shoots his entire channel on a Canon 5D. So it's just, we live in this weird time and not weird. Weird's the wrong word, really fascinating, interesting and inclusive time where, yeah, you find your lane, 
And then you, then it's on you to market and brand your lane. Um, Brandon, you've been so incredible with your time and, and your information and knowledge. It's inspiring to see everything you've done. I only have a few more questions and, and uh, we can, we can wrap. I, I wanted to make sure I get in a plug and then just talk to you about the man in the box. So this is a novel. It's available, five-star novel. It's available on Amazon right now. Uh, can you tell us what the novel is about first? And then that process of writing long form descriptive novel style literature versus a comic book or a screenplay. Yeah. Like it, it started, I started off as a screenplay I wrote and I ended up shooting a trailer for it. It's kind of, it's kind of like half trailer, half short film thing and it turned out fairly well, but it just, it's just another project I have that one day I'll eventually make, but I always liked the story. A lot of people like that story. So I was like, well, how can I get the story out there? And I was like, what if I turn it into a book? It was kind of my second novel. Basically my first one was I'm haunted that I kind of just turned the movie, the, the web series into a book, but uh, man in the box is basically the first one I wrote as an actual novel. And it's, it's about a woman who's like your husband dies and she wants to reach him from beyond the grave. So she finds they're, they're kind of real, like quote unquote, real things. Yeah. I think you can find them on like Amazon, but they're like ghost boxes. That's supposed to allow you to speak to the ghosts Yeah, using like radio waves. I'm assuming they don't really work because that's impossible. But in the book, basically, she's trying to buy one of these things, tries to reach her husband, can't find him, but she ends up contacting some sort of entity. Turns out to be like a demon, basically. Um, but she basically forms a friendship with it. She's really lonely. And at first, it's super cool. They become friends and it's like helping her. And then just more and more, it kind of starts taking over her life mm -hmm. until the point where it's like, she ends up like killing someone and it helps her cover it up. Oh man. And then, but then she has to do like another murder to cover up that first one. And then all of a sudden it's like, everything gets out of control. So it was, it was fun. I actually really liked that. I want to write another novel soon. I just, I liked not being confined like with a script. You got, you got a lot to, going I, on, man. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> I I just, you're going to write a novel. Yeah. I, did. I just like, I just sat down, I pounded it out. And it, it, it changed a lot from the movie, really expanded on it. It's still a very short book, but it's gotten, you know, fairly good. People seem to like it. I got one pretty bad review on uh, online where the guys like said I should, I should stick to screenwriting um, oh. because he said there's not enough detail. Stay in your lane, a lot of books I read. Stay in I your lane. Like I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't like books that have insane amount of detail, right? Like it's yeah. like, get to the point, just tell the interesting thing. I don't want to hear like a whole page on what the person's wearing. It's yeah. like, just get the, you know, a lot of so that's what I did, exposition. right? I just got to the point. Yeah, yeah. Like the, all that stuff is just boring. Get to the story. So that's what I did is like right to the story. And apparently that pissed some people off, but, um, but yeah, the book, it was fun. It was fun to do that. And I do, I'm almost thinking of writing that as a TV series. It just seems like it should be a series. A lot of people I know are selling TV pilots and selling series. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh shit, if they can do it, I can do it. So I might turn that one into uh, like some sort of, I don't know how many episodes, but 12, six or whatever. Uh, I got to look into it and figure out how to write a TV series and I'll do that and then try to sell it. Perfect. That's beautiful, man. This has been as fun as I, I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I learned a ton and uh, 
you know, you're, you're an endless well, well of knowledge. Um, for those listening, can you tell them where they can find you on social media, on the internet, and maybe even see grotesque or some of your other work? Yeah, I'm on like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram under uh, my name, Brandon Rhinus. That's and R-H-I-N-E-S-S, higher universe is my company. N-E-S-S, by the way. Yeah. R-H-I-N-E-S-S. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Higher Universe is my company. Higher Universe Comics and Higher Universe Pictures are my comics and movies. So if you Google that, I have a YouTube channel that has uh, all my stuff on it. And yeah, if you go to Tubi, you can find um, uh, Grotesque on there. And it's also on Amazon. And Hotbox is on there too. I'm not sure if it's on Tubi or not, but if you look for um, Hotbox, you can you can find it. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, go watch Grotesque. It's great. You're probably going to love it. And we're starting Grotesque 2. We start shooting June 2nd. So that'll be out probably early 2024. But keep your eye out for that, dude. That's amazing. And we'll end on this, Brandon. Yeah. If you could have a mentorship dinner with Tony Robbins or Mark Cuban, and you can only choose one, which do you pick? Ooh, I'd uh, I'd probably go Tony <laughs> Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he'd be more fun to talk to, a bit more positive. So, oh, that's interesting because I thought that Mark Cuban would be more interesting to talk to and Tony Robbins would be more positive, like you said. Like, he'd be more yeah. positive, inspiring. And he would probably have the background to give me the solutions I needed. Whereas Mark uh, Cuban would be really interesting. We could read his Instagram DMs together. We could, like, talk about, like, inside stories at the Dallas Mavericks. You know, yeah. we could we could ask and, and sort of discuss how Adam Silver stays so pale. Like, we could we could like ask these questions that are like burning sort of pop culture questions while we get point. drunk together. So I'm not, I'm not a sports fan. So that, that wouldn't interest me so much. Like I'd be uh, just in Mark Cuban's like business knowledge. Yeah. Um, that too. But Tony Robbins would have business knowledge too. So it's like, it'd be, it'd be a toss up, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to invite them both if I could. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and here, here, and uh, for this audience, Please do go seek out Brandon Rhinus, the hardest working man in indie film. Uh, and if not, show me someone that's working harder. You <laughs> heard all the places where you can go uh, check out him and his work, including Tubi, where you can go see his new film, Grotesque. He's got Grotesque 2 already on the way. And in his words, if they can do it, you can do it. So don't forget that. Go out, have some discipline because discipline is the uh, the the balancer, the, the, the thing that evens this whole thing out. If you can have some discipline and ambition, uh, it levels the playing field for you. If you want to know more about Bonsai, Creative, and of course, this podcast, the Make It podcast, that's easy. Just go to www.bonsai.film, or you can search for Make It on any of uh, the socials, or you can search for Bonsai Creative at uh, Facebook and TikTok, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at underscore. That's right, underscore Bonsai Creative, because there's a sweet British gentleman that owns Bonsai Creative, and one day he'll pass away and give that to us. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I kid. Uh, so until next time, uh, take care of yourselves. And Brandon, I hope to talk to you soon. I hope it's not two more years. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I hope they'll be on with, say, one year. Yep, absolutely. Talk to you All soon, right. and best of luck with growth test too. Thank you. All right. Be good, man. Okay, bye. bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Bonsai Creative, and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film forward slash donate. Donations start at only $5 monthly. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of branding and marketing packages and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.